smart contracts as a term was coined by Nick Zabo back in 1996, before the idea of a blockchain was even a twinkling in Satoshi's eye. They had nothing to do with DAOs or decentralized exchanges or any of these types of constructs that people tend to think of when they hear the term. The best in Bitcoin made audible. I am Guy Swan, and this is Bitcoin Audible. What is up, guys? Welcome back to Bitcoin Audible. I am Guy Swan, the guy who has read more about Bitcoin than anybody else you know. And this is the place where we read, discover, explore, chat about, and dig into everything about the revolutionary breakthrough that is the Bitcoin system. And today, we're talking about smart contracts. Drop the hype, throw out the obnoxious marketing, the DAOs. What the hell really is a smart contract? And what can they be used for? Uh, and, and where do they come from? This is a piece by Shinobi. I'm sure many of you already follow Shinobi. He's a great resource. Uh, if you want to find him on Twitter, um, while Bitcoin Twitter is still around, uh, he is at Brian underscore trolls with a Z. Obviously, I'll have a link in the show notes for everybody who isn't sitting there right now with pen and paper waiting for me to say something to write down. Uh, this is a really great piece, though. It's on Bitcoin Magazine, breaking down Bitcoin and smart contracts. And we will get into it in about 35 seconds after I thank our amazing sponsors. First, I thank Shift Crypto and the Bitbox O2 for keeping my Bitcoin safe in a secure and easy-to-use hardware wallet just easy to pop in and use whenever I need it. I want to thank Swan Bitcoin for being there when I needed to buy the living shit out of the recent dip and for stacking automatically for me every week. And I thank Fold for giving me sats back on everything in my life. I literally got $14 back on an Amazon gift card today and so far this year have stacked 4.7 million sats for doing what I always do. And... Lastly, I would like to thank Bitcoin 2022 and Bitcoin Magazine for the most epic Bitcoin conference on the planet and for inviting me as a speaker. I'm seriously stoked about this year and it is amazing to be a part of such an event. So uh, links, discount codes, and all that fun stuff at BitcoinAudible.com. All right. With that, about that time, eh, chaps? Let's get into today's article. And it is titled, Yes, Bitcoin is a smart contract platform. Many think that smart contracts are only executable on overly complex blockchains, but Bitcoin is a smart contract platform by definition. By Shinobi. What is a smart contract? This is a question that these days has become impossible to answer without starting the digital equivalent of a bar fight. The minute that term is thrown out in a conversation, most people immediately think Ethereum or Solana or Tron or any of these decentralized in name only, Dino, 
projects that have popped up over the years since the inception of Bitcoin. Most new or uninformed people in this ecosystem probably think that the term smart contract was coined by projects like Ethereum, and that these projects literally invented them. When they hear smart contracts, they probably immediately start thinking about decentralized autonomous organizations, DAOs, decentralized exchanges, automatic market makers, and other such Turing-complete applications on Ethereum. Conceptually, anything that doesn't approach that level of complexity is probably immediately dismissed by most people as not a smart contract. But nothing could be further from the truth. The Birth of Smart Contracts Smart contracts as a term was coined by Nick Zabo back in 1996, before the idea of a blockchain was even a twinkling in Satoshi's eye. They had nothing to do with DAOs or decentralized exchanges or any of these types of constructs that people tend to think of when they hear the term. The concept was drastically more simple and basic than any of these systems built on top of platforms like Ethereum. Smart contracts were simply taking conventional legal contracts and finding ways to move the enforcement of them outside of the scope of governmental jurisdictions into the realm of enforcement through software and hardware as much as possible. To quote Zabo himself, quote, New institutions and new ways to formalize the relationships that make up these institutions are now made possible by the digital revolution. I call these new contracts smart because they are far more functional than their inanimate paper-based ancestors. No use of artificial intelligence is implied. A smart contract is a set of promises specified in digital form, including protocols within which the parties perform on these promises. Nowhere in this definition is mentioned Turing completeness or decentralized autonomous organization, or anything that implies that some minimal level of complexity is required in order to be considered a smart contract. Some of the examples Zabo gave as forerunners to smart contracts, or as I would define them, proto-smart contracts, are very basic things, such as vending machines or point-of-sale systems. In the instance of the vending machine, this is a proto-smart contract embedded in hardware. The contract it implements is very simple. A user inserts coins into the machine, and the machine dispenses the food that the user purchased. Overall, the security of the machine boils down to the actual physical hardware. It's very time-consuming and difficult to open a vending machine and remove food from it without paying for it. So that's very unlikely to be something that can be done in most cases without the perpetrator getting caught by law enforcement or some employee at the place where the vending machine is situated. Another important detail is that contracts generally involve multiple steps between the involved parties. Very rarely can something involving a contractual arrangement be facilitated in a single step. The user inputs coins into the vending machine, which then allows the user to select what they are purchasing. The user then makes their selection and the machine dispenses the goods. That's a four-step process. One, inserting money. Two, the machine advancing to the goods selection process. Three, the user making their selection. Four, the machine dispensing the user's selection. Now, here is an important point to consider. 
The dynamic of the contract involves two parties, the vending machine and the customer. It instantiates a very simple clause accomplished in the four steps defined above. Give the vending machine money, the vending machine gives you food. But what happens if you put your money into the vending machine and the food isn't properly dispensed? Who deals with this problem? Who do you go to in order to get it solved and resolve the contract properly after it failed to do so on its own? To resolve this failure to execute, you would need to either find an employee at the business that the vending machine is situated at or contact the support line, if any, for the owner. Someone would have to step in and actually correct the improper execution of the contract. This brings me to a very important point. Smart contract does not by definition mean devoid of trust in third parties. In fact, in the words of Zabo, quote, Smart contracts often involve trusted third parties, exemplified by an intermediary who is involved in the performance and an arbitrator who is invoked to resolve disputes arising out of performance or lack thereof. Really think about that. In any type of contract, the potential exists for one party or another to cheat and refuse to make good on their end of the contract. It is always possible for the contract to not execute properly. Someone or something, that is by definition a third party, has to intervene in the event of improper execution and correct for that to enforce the appropriate execution and potentially enforce penalties for the initial improper execution if appropriate. Most proto-smart contracts and even fully smart contracts are not trustless. Most can't even be automated on both sides. Think of the case of someone buying a pack of cigarettes with a debit card on a point-of-sale machine at a gas station. That customer actually has to trust the human being on the other side of the register to hand them the cigarettes after the point-of-sale system flags their payment as completed. If the clerk refuses to do so, the customer has to trust their bank or the card processor to refund the payment because they did not receive what they paid for. The Goals of Smart Contracts So now that we've established the conceptual trust models of proto-smart contracts, let's go over the four important objectives of designing a contract as delineated by Zabo. Observability the people or things involved in the contract have to be able to see that the other party is performing correctly to the terms of the contract and be able to prove that they themselves are performing correctly to the other party. Verifiability All parties to a contract need the ability to prove to the chosen arbitrator of the contract that it has either been performed correctly or that one party or parties have breached their obligations in the contract. Privity The contract should be constructed as privately as possible. The amount of private information about the contract or the parties involved that is disseminated beyond them to the public or other third parties should be kept to the bare minimum necessary to execution of the contract. Enforceability 
there needs to be some mechanism of ensuring that things execute correctly, even in the case of one or more parties violating their obligations under the terms of the contract, and as well, the contract should be structured to make the likelihood that enforcement will be needed very unlikely. Contracts should encourage parties who voluntarily comply with their obligations under the terms. The design goals above effectively exist to provide the highest odds that contracts execute correctly in the vast majority of cases, while simultaneously protecting the details of the contract from the prying eyes of the public, unless revealing those details is absolutely necessary to give the contract the highest odds of ending with proper execution of the terms. Primitives of Smart Contracts Cryptographic protocols are a definitional component of smart contracts. Zabo called them the, quote, basic building blocks that implement the improved trade-offs between observability, verifiability, privity, and enforceability in smart contracts. So what are the basic primitives required to implement cryptographic protocols? Cryptographic key pairs, of course. In order to engage in a smart contract, the principal participants and arbitrators are each required to generate a private key and then derive a public key from that to share with the other participants as a means to interact with each other through the process of the smart contract. There also needs to be a digital signature scheme for the participants to sign off on the terms and execution of the smart contract and also provide proofs in the form of those signatures to the arbiter if necessary, showing the agreement to the initial terms of the contract and whether or not the contract was executed properly as defined by those terms. This introduces a foundational requirement for any party involved in the creation and execution of smart contracts, protecting your private keys. This is very important for two reasons. First, Obviously, if your private key involved in a smart contract is compromised and stolen, the thief can make it seem like you attempted to execute the contract improperly. Second, the thief doing so creates the perception to the other participants of the smart contract that you are an untrustworthy counterparty, and potentially to the public at large as well. It gives you a bad reputation. At a bare minimum, such an occurrence would lead to the counterparty of that smart contract likely not wanting to involve themselves in contracts to which you are a counterparty. Beyond that, if the breach of contract occurred publicly or somehow was revealed to the public, that hesitance to get involved in smart contracts with you would likely spread to the wider public as well. Reputations can tie themselves to legal identities or just pseudonyms, so the degree of reputational damage can vary depending on what a reputation is tied to, but reputational damage can still occur. The difference is only in the difficulty of separating yourself from that identity with a damaged reputation after the fact, i.e. a pseudonym on the internet versus your real name. Let's look at a very basic example of a smart contract now. In the 1990s, when Zabo originally coined this term, one of the most exciting cryptographic tools of the time 
was David Chalm's digital e-cash, described in depth here. The link will be in the show notes. I will just quickly summarize, though. Think of e-cash as digital notes issued by a central authority, the arbitrator of the contract. These notes are simply large, random numbers with a cryptographic signature from the authority proving they are valid. To spend one, you give it to the person you are paying, and they redeem it with the central authority and are issued a new one. Also, because of how the signing process works, the authority cannot figure out who pays who, so it is very private. In this smart contract, you have the spender and the receiver, and the central authority arbitrating whether or not a transfer between the spender and receiver has occurred. Now, part of this design back then was based on two modes of using such a smart contract. One, with an active internet connection redeeming digital notes the instant you receive them. Or two, delaying the redemption process and redeeming digital notes in batches. In the case of using the first method, with an honest central authority, there should be no risk of being defrauded with a note that has already been redeemed by the authority. In the case of offline use, the receiver runs the risk that a customer spends a digital note in multiple places, meaning that only one of these receivers can actually redeem it at the authority. Everyone else loses money. The cheated party, or parties, have no option now but to assess the reputation of the person who cheated them differently in future transactions. Rationally, from that point onward, they would refuse to render goods or services to that customer until after successfully redeeming their digital note from the central authority, if they would even engage in business with the customer at all in the future. The central authority in a Chalmian eCash system is the enforcing authority, and the users are oracles providing data to that authority to enforce an outcome. When the receiver of a digital note goes to redeem it, they are functioning as an oracle, a person or thing claiming something, and in cases where possible, providing proof that something is true. They are stating, as an oracle to the authority, that they have been paid a digital note by someone. Their proof of that statement is the digital note itself, and they will only be issued a new one by the authority if it deems the statement that the oracle has made is valid. It's worth pointing out for later that it is possible to have third-party oracles involved in a transaction, i.e. two people transferring digital notes to a third-party oracle with the purpose of all the notes being transferred back to one participant or the other based on the outcome of a football game. The only real difference here compared with the simple example of a basic transaction is that the truthfulness of the oracle's statement cannot be verified by an automated computer, in the same way that cryptography authorizing a basic note transfer can be. Only human beings can verify many kinds of statements that oracles can make. So, what does this ultimately illustrate regarding the nature of this smart contract? Either the incentives for both parties to act honestly are good enough, i.e. the merchant won't sell you food in the future if you cheat them, or they have to trust the arbitrator to properly enforce the contract, 
so the customer has no room to act dishonestly. So, not only do both sides have to trust each other to act honestly, but if a participant tries to act dishonestly, the other participant has to trust the arbitrator to act honestly to protect them. There is no way to escape that. Bitcoin as a smart contract platform. So let's bring all of this home to Bitcoin. Bitcoin is literally a smart contracting platform. That's what it is, what it always was, what it was designed to be. The Bitcoin network functions as a giant distributed arbitrator enforcing the proper execution of smart contracts without relying on a single central authority to do so. It provides a mechanism for contracts to be observable, verifiable, and enforceable. The only quality of a contract it has fallen short on historically is privity. All the terms of Bitcoin smart contracts are public for all to see. It does, however, at least protect the real identities of those engaging in contracts, and Taproot's recent activation is a massive improvement in terms of hiding the clauses of a contract unless needed to enforce them. Every time a Bitcoin transaction occurs, the sender acts as an oracle claiming the ability to spend money and providing proof in the form of a digital signature. The receiver and every single participant on the network observes the transaction propagating through the network and verifies that the digital signature is correct. Then, whatever miner successfully finds the next block steps in and takes the place of a central authority and executes the smart contract by including the transaction in a block and propagating it through the network. And finally, the receiver and the entire network verifies the correctness of every signature and contract witness in the block. Ultimately, contracts executed on Bitcoin still require trust in an arbitrator to execute properly. But the arbitrator is a distributed network of everyone cross-checking everyone else. The more people involved in participating in that network cross-checking each other, the more trusted the network is to always execute things properly. This is the single greatest achievement of Bitcoin, but it's also the greatest limitation of Bitcoin and any blockchain that has any shred of actual decentralization. The blockchain, or rather all of the nodes participating on the network verifying their copy of it, can enforce all kinds of rules on its own such as transactions only being processed if the digital signatures authorizing them are correct, or only after a time lock preventing a coin from moving until a certain time expires, etc. It can automatically enforce any contract that only requires inputting cryptographic data, because an oracle either publishes 100% verifiable cryptographic data directly to the network, or they don't. But it cannot automatically enforce properly any contract that requires inputting data that cannot be represented in cryptography that is verifiably correct, i.e. 
Bitcoin cannot automatically enforce that a bet on a football game executes correctly. There is no way for a blockchain to verify that the score at the end of the game that an oracle asserts is correct. So while Bitcoin can make the execution of basic transactions, or transactions with relatively simple cryptographic conditions, trustless, it cannot make the execution of any arbitrary contract trustless. Only contracts that can be proven 100% correct with data that can be published on the blockchain can be enforced trustlessly. Now, different blockchain architectures can allow different degrees of complex things to be proven purely by on-chain data. But that involves discussing security trade-offs that are outside the scope of this piece. Any contract involving conditions not provable 100% by publishing data on-chain requires, by necessity, introducing trust. But as discussed above, having a third party involved does not exclude something from being a smart contract. So, to answer the question, of what is a smart contract? Literally everything occurring on a blockchain. Alrighty, and that concludes Shinobi's piece on Bitcoin Magazine. Uh, why, Bi wait, what is it? Yes, Bitcoin is a smart contract platform. Uh, let's take a quick break and hit our sponsor for the day, and, uh, and then I want to do a guy's take on this piece. Are you holding your keys? Do you actually own your Bitcoin? Now, if you have a secure hardware wallet like the Bitbox 02, you do. You do own them. If they are on an exchange, you do not. You own a promise and nothing else. This is why I recommend the Bitbox 02. And this stuff can be intimidating for new people. And that's really why I like the BitBox. It's, it's really intuitive to use, to set up. It really just takes a few minutes. You're up and running. The desktop app is super straightforward. It doesn't overload you with a lot of confusing options or jargon or pointless complexity. Yet, it actually does have most of those advanced features. You know, for any of the nerds like myself who want to dig in and use Tor, they want to connect it to their own node, they want to play around with multisig and all that fun jazz. So obviously, for the family that you care about, it's a great Christmas gift. Get them a bitbox and walk them through holding their own keys for the first time, protect them, get that crap off of an exchange. But for the family you do not care about, do not get them a bitbox. They can just leave it up there. Use code GUY, G-U-Y, possibly the shortest discount code ever, for 5% off and go to guyswan.com slash bitbox. It takes you straight there and you can grab yourself a bitbox today. With that, let's jump back in. You know, I think it's, I think it's really interesting how misunderstood this is. Um, and this is how Shinobi opens the article too. Um, he kind of hits on that idea that, you know, most people who are new to this space think that smart contracts are something that, you know, Ethereum or Solana invented, and that this is something that Bitcoin doesn't have, but finally, thanks to enter some shitcoin here, 
we have smart contracts in this, uh, in this new DeFi world, or Web3, whatever the hell they call it these days. Um, and, they are, and they almost always seem to refer to these kind of like hype names, like these, these, um, these like hyped acronyms and buzzwords and things like ICOs were all the rage and NFTs and DAOs and DEXs and automatic market makers and I mean, just like the number of different things and they're kind of arbitrary, right? Like what exactly makes a DAO and what is, what really does the D and the A mean and how does it apply? Like there's such a fundamental misunderstanding and certainly a failure to understand where the idea of smart contracts came from and what they really are and what makes them useful. Now, I think he mentions Nick Zabo, like where, where the smart contracts term came from, like where it was coined. Um, and uh, I think I have read the piece that he links to and quotes here by Nick Zabo on the podcast before. I'm not 100% sure. I could be wrong, but I'm going to have to dig for that one a little bit because it would be super early if I did. But the idea of smart contracts is really just to separate as much of the execution and setup of an agreement between two parties to automate a flow of an exchange, to make it a software or hardware-based system where only when things go wrong does someone need to come in and intervene or does a third party need to even be involved. But as soon as you're... And, and Shinobi really hits this point home, I feel like, that as soon as you have something in the real world, as soon as there is a product, is uh, something of values, a piece of land, or a business agreement, anything that the blockchain itself cannot enforce anything not native to the blockchain, i.e. in the context of Bitcoin, anything that isn't settling Bitcoin, some sort of trust or trusted third party is necessarily going to be there. I mean, this is the whole idea that you can't have bananas on the blockchain. Like, this is why the idea of blockchain for everything makes no sense. The only thing that Bitcoin can secure, Bitcoin the network and the blockchain, is Bitcoin. And the only thing that is restricted within a set of rules on Bitcoin is Bitcoin. Why? Because Bitcoin is created within the set of rules. Therefore, it's the only thing that can't violate it. The Bitcoin itself and the rules are inseparable. It is by confirming and validating the rules that you know the Bitcoin exists in the first place. As soon as some human has to input data from outside the world, as soon as you're putting a shipment history or something on the blockchain, the person entering the data is a trusted third party. You have to completely trust them. They could make a mistake. They could lie. Like, there's absolutely nothing, and you can have a provable history of all the records, of all the different distributions, or whatever it is, but every single time something moves in the real world, the best you can to do is trust an oracle to stamp that information somewhere. The information on the blockchain has no greater integrity than just trusting their records on their server. In both cases, you're trusting that a human has made 
an accurate and honest update to the information. This is why Bitcoiners for years have been talking about the idea that blockchains for everything make no sense. Blockchains for managing supply chains are just inefficient databases because it's still just a database with all of the problems of a database except that it's a lot slower and distributed for no particular reason when there's still a absolute obvious central point of trust. This is kind of like why the, you know, the Constitution DAO that happened recently, the Constitution DAO thing, it just doesn't, like, that doesn't make any sense to me. Like, like I get, okay, we're trying to get a bunch of people together to buy the Constitution, but nobody is, it's not like they actually own it. Like, do the people who become part of that really think that what the legal system is going to enforce that these what, 10,000 people? I don't know how many participated in that thing. But the, all these 10,000 people have legal ownership of the Constitution? And if there is something legally binding that, well, then you understand it's the legal system that is enforcing the ownership, not the DAO. It's not as if they can all share physical possession of the actual Constitution. Like, there's going to be one person or one small group that actually is holding the thing. It is actually, it's in a building somewhere. It's a physical thing. It's not like if they stole it or ran away with it or didn't let somebody come in and look at it who quote-unquote supposedly owned it that you could go to the Constitution DAO and sign a transaction and make them give it to you. Like, the only hope that anybody in that organization, whatever the hell you call it, DAO, um, had any sort of potential ownership of the Constitution would be if the legal system said that that is actual equity or actual shares of ownership to the Constitution. And if it doesn't, then it's not. It would be kind of like if I made a Volvo DAO and then a whole bunch of people contributed to it so that I could buy a Volvo and then we pretended that everybody owned the Volvo and acted like we were all going to drive it to work when obviously only one person can drive the Volvo to work. It's a real car and there's one of them and it exists somewhere in a particular place at a particular time and has to be maintained and protected by some central person. So in any real sense of the terms decentralized autonomous organization, as soon as we are talking about the actual constitution or the actual Volvo, the D and the A are nonsense. It is a 100% centralized manual organization. But Shinobi talks about in this article that like the idea of something being centralized or having a trusted party, because anything in the real world has that essentially, like you are trusting the other party to meet their end of the arrangement or the, their side of the agreement. This does not have any bearing on whether something is a smart contract or not. Like, even if a DAO was what it says it is, that doesn't make it any more or less a smart contract. And the idea that somehow it's, you know, way more complex or broad or Turing complete or whatever also doesn't make it a better smart contract. In fact, arguably, it makes it worse because it likely will need 
the more broad the attack surface of whatever the agreement or whatever the contract being written up, the more likely you're going to need a third party to intervene. The more pathways of something going wrong exist in the agreement, which we see all the time in these decentralized exchanges, the DEXs. I mean, for crying out loud, what was it? DYDX went down yesterday because of Amazon Web Services. I mean, come on, if an exchange goes down because AWS went down, it's not decentralized. Anyway, a little bit of tangent here. So back to just the idea of smart contracts um, and uh, going back to Zabo's definition, kind of the origin of the very idea, what makes them useful and why probably the simplest sort of smart contract is going is the one with the most utility like the vending machine vending machines are all over the place and it's a it's essentially a proto smart contract it is simplifying something that doesn't need that does not always need a third party why do you always need when you're making a simple exchange of a drink or a bottle of water or a bag of chips why do you need somebody sitting there all the time to execute that exchange Somebody to take the money and put it in a register and make sure that you got only those that bag of chips. That's a huge overhead when essentially you can make a box that's hard to get into and create a proto smart contract built into the into the hardware to make that exchange, to facilitate that exchange. And then put it in a place where people are doing other things so that it's easy to get caught if you try to break that smart contract or violate it. But still, I love that as the best example. Like the vending machine is such a great example of what a smart contract is. I feel like, um, and uh, and I've always kind of gone back to that in my mind whenever I think about it. Um, and I highly recommend reading Zabo's Unenumerated, his blog that just has all of this stuff in it, because there's so many kind of foundational ideas that ended up making their way into Bitcoin and quote-unquote crypto and all of these things and he he does there's no hype in it you I mean he wrote these things in 19 in the 1990s and early 2000s when you look through his database so he hits it from an incredibly uh base level like like none of it is there, there's no marketing there's no hype it's just what is this useful for how can we break down exactly what it is and exactly why it would be useful and what are the trade-offs? Where does trust have to exist? Where can we actually eliminate it? And everything he breaks down is just incredibly concrete, I guess is probably the word for it. Like he doesn't write about any hand-wavy nonsense or pie-in-the-sky dreams or anything. It's just practical reality of all of these potential systems. And the beauty of having Bitcoin is that, and Shinobi gets into this kind of at the very end when he turns wraps this all the way back around to talk about bitcoin is that bitcoin is essentially that arbiter for the execution of contracts because the money of bitcoin is created within the blockchain back to the idea i was explaining is that as long as it's within the rules of the system then bitcoin as the money of an agreement as the ownership that can have explicit instructions written onto it means half of the agreement and its execution can be done in a distributed fashion 
And you can't do that with anything other than Bitcoin. As soon as we're talking about the real world, that attribute goes away. When we're talking about, you know, manufacturing and exchanging glass for a million iPhones or uh, buying food at a restaurant or a product being purchased online, there's no way to avoid a trusted third party or at least some degree of trust in that arrangement because it's a trusted exchange. That's exactly what it is. And this is why I think that all the perceived quote-unquote crypto innovation has been almost entirely isolated to crypto assets. It never goes back to the real world. Everyone is just printing new tokens to go onto these platforms because it's impossible to build a trustless relationship with something that exists. Like you can't have a decentralized exchange that exchanges gold in any meaningful sense because it's not decentralized when you're having to trust the issuer of the gold or the, or the person who supposedly has gold somewhere in a safe and then has a digital token corresponding to it. And that's why all these DEXs and DAOs and, you know, market liquidity systems or whatever are just shitcoins trading shitcoins. Because it's the only thing that they can trade. As soon as you start talking about equity, as soon as you talk, start talking about doing something valuable in the real world and making an exchange there, all of these systems become useless for those things. Back to the gold example, you can't have decentralized ownership of gold if there's a central entity in control of the gold that is put in a vault somewhere, or just, you know, not only does it depend on what they do with the gold, it depends on whether or not they actually had the gold in the first place. The set of problems or the failure modes of that system is exactly identical to all of the problems and failure modes that we've had with gold-backed notes since the 1600s. It, it like nothing has changed. It's just digital instead of paper. And this is basically why almost all of DeFi is essentially just trading empty tokens that have no connection to the real world. Essentially, the only activity that's occurring on these are the trade and arbitrage between relative inflation rates of arbitrary tokens and speculation cycles, where, where they are in the speculation, of cycle, speculation cycle of token X as opposed to token Y. Well, I'm going to sell token X because it's on the back end of its hype curve, and I'm going to buy token Y because I think it's on the uptrend. And I think that's why it builds out so quick. There's the appearance of so much happening on Ethereum and DeFi and all of these other tokens or whatever is because it doesn't have to be connected to anything real in order for quote-unquote progress to be made. And probably the only exception to that is stablecoins, except for the fact that stable, like the exchange of stablecoins are actually meaningful when you're looking at the potential of a decentralized way to exchange between Bitcoin and stablecoins and stuff like that. But you still have the exact same trusted party problem. Your, your stablecoins are issued by some other party, and you still are entirely reliant on whether or not you can get that, you can do anything with that stablecoin, or you can redeem it for dollars in the legacy banking system, or that they are actually quote-unquote real dollars, which is a really bizarre term because none of that shit is real, but yeah, I think you get what I'm saying. 
Now, back to the idea of a, just the general idea of smart contracts and where they can be really well used. Um, like a great example, and I'm really still surprised that this has not been taken and applied to a bunch of stuff yet. And I feel like there's, there's really something here. There's, there's a foundation of something really amazing in the lightning pool system. So conceptually, lightning pool is actually a pretty, uh, pretty simple idea. It's essentially a separate network that is running where you can run the software yourself. So you're, you can be a node in this network and you have the software as well as the service provider. This server that you're connecting to has the software. This is not very unlike uh, Hal Finney's original idea of being able to attest to what the central server is doing um, and like kind of the Chalmian eCache stuff that cypherpunks had worked on back in the day is you would have a central party that was running a server but the idea is that everything that was going on in that server was perfectly verifiable by the user you know that's in the four elements this is observability and verifiability in the the context of the smart contracts uh, and how Shinobi and Zabo were breaking this down. But this was always critical for quote-unquote trustless private digital cash throughout the 90s. Like it was kind of seen as like one of those obvious pieces of the puzzle that needed to be sorted out. So as part of this network, you're running the software and Lightning Pool, the provider or whatever, is also running this software. This makes it so that you can see the output of your software and simply verify that it's exactly the same as the output by Lightning Pool. While as a user, you are locking up funds in a multi-sig with Lightning Pool, with this organization, or maybe even a federation of different service providers or a network, you know, who knows, like there's a bunch of different ways that this could apply, but in this context, Lightning Pool is a central service that never actually has custody of your funds, but you have a shared arrangement that executes based on the full agreement of Lightning Pool and the user. So this multi-sig is actually attached, I think it kind of works that there's, it's actually attached to a hash of the output of the software that you're running. Um, I could be wrong on that. It might just be like a basic multi-sig kind of like Lightning and that's run separate. But regardless, the idea is that both parties are running the code for the marketplace and if they receive the exact same output, then the user knows it's accurate. It's, run, it's running the code that the user has, and so the user knows that the output is um, valid, I guess you could say, like it's not been cheated. And so they will execute, they will sign to execute the trade for it to go through. But if the Lightning Pool service provider and the user do not get the same result, well then the user just does nothing. And there's a time lock on the multi-sig, and they just get their funds back. So Lightning Pool is able to provide a service and create a marketplace that anyone can participate in without ever actually having the funds. They never take the funds from any users. They are never a custodian. They are purely the operator and facilitator of the smart contract. And in this context, the contract is actually, the contract on Bitcoin, the multi-sig contract, is the way to mitigate trust because you're using a distributed arbiter for 
for that contract. You're, you're using Bitcoin, the network, as your quote-unquote court to enforce the ownership. Whereas what Lightning Pool is doing is executing a completely different piece of software that is quote-unquote Turing complete because it's got nothing to do with Bitcoin. It's just a marketplace software that the user can verify for themselves and they are attaching the outcome of that. They are the oracle for the execution of the multisig, for the exchange of the Bitcoin to the people who need the, the liquidity on the Lightning Network. And that's a brilliant system. That's such a simple idea of how to separate the functions and let Bitcoin do what it is supposed to do and what it does incredibly well while having no limitations on what you can do with the software and the marketplace outside of it because it's not in Bitcoin. Its outcome is simply attached to Bitcoin. And you can use that for anything, really. And then you start adding Taproot to the equation and the number of different things and ways that you can apply some sort of setup or system like this just gets really crazy. And Shinobi only like kind of hints at her, like I think there's like one or two lines about Taproot. Um, but uh, that's where like when going back to the, the four key elements, the observability, the verifiability, the enforceability, and the privity, um, which privity is privacy. Uh, for I assume everybody knows, but just in case. Um, so the idea that a party or a execution of the contract, like a, a branch in the contract, it needs to be private. Like you can't just see all of the instructions. And right now you can. Right now Bitcoin falls short on that one element of the 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 goals of a solid of a desirable smart contract system. And Shinobi points out that you can hide the participants, like you can still, like it's not like you have to expose your identity to, you know, do a multi-sig contract or a hash time lock or whatever the hell it is. You can hide your identity, but not the fact that you participated if your identity is discovered elsewhere and tied to your public keys or your address or something like that. It's not very hard to then uncover the fact that you were part of this. Because essentially all the public keys have to be revealed up front just to set up the just to set up the contract. But Taproot changes this. Taproot is a huge improvement and basically checks off the last piece of the box for the desirable smart contract platform. Taproot essentially turns all of the arrangements, the the different branches and all of the participants in a multi-sig contract and in a in any smart contract no matter how complex and basically boils it all down to just a public key so all of the spe uh, specific participants and possible outcomes of the contract are invisible and the only time that anything is exposed, even during, during all the cooperative arrangements or the, the cooperative exits and exchanges of any sort of Taproot-based contract, you don't see anything. You still just see the public key. None of the details are ever exposed. It is only in the case that you have to use a branch of it in contesting the, the contract to enforce it in the case of a non-cooperative exit. It's kind of like a lightning channel, right? Is that you don't have to use, there's this branch where you have to enforce your ownership if the other party cheats you. 
But if you don't have to use that, you both just sign with the latest state and withdraw your coins from the channel. Taproot is kind of like that. As long as the parties that need to sign agree on the outcome of the contract, well, everybody can just sign and it's just a public key. But if someone needs to enforce their branch because the parties disappeared or they, you know, have a backup clause because somebody lost their keys, somebody needs to go to a lawyer who is part of this multi-sig and they need to sign to enforce some arrangement because, you know, they didn't deliver on their uh, one million glass iPhone covers, whatever the hell it is. Well, then that one branch needs to be exposed in order to enforce it. But all the other potential branches, all the other lawyers that may have had keys involved in this, all the other backup clauses for all of the other participants, none of that needs to be revealed. Just the branch that was needed in order to produce a mathematically valid signature. So it's going to be really interesting to see what is what gets built with this. And it's, it's awesome to kind of see that last checkbox right? Like, we need privacy in the smart contracts. And, you know, Nick Zabo uh, laid out what the hope was for a way to issue these things. And Bitcoin is a, 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 it's a profound innovation when it comes to the idea of a arbiter for a smart contract in money, for a monetary contract. And to see something, to have something written back in, I think it was 1996, and see where we are today in the ability to, to see it come to fruition. It's really just kind of amazing. Like what, a, what, an incredible, what an incredible thing to watch all of these ideas of the cypherpunks become a reality. Uh, but then also, at the same time, watch crypto so badly crucify the basic idea in, in this hype machine of absurd confusing marketing it just feels like you know quantum networks and blockchains it just it's all god it's just all obnoxious sometimes but if you really want to know it's funny this whole article this whole article that like, goes into a lot of detail right but to for the simplest like no bullshit answer shinobi sums it all up in the last phrase the very last line to answer the question of what is a smart contract, literally everything occurring on a blockchain. <laughs> so if anybody asks you that again, and does Bitcoin have smart contracts, that's what you can say. Yes, Bitcoin is nothing but a smart contract platform. All right, that, that'll do it. I think I've blabbed enough at this point. A uh, huge thank you. Uh, thanks to Shinobi for writing this. And I need to do, I think he had another one actually that's about if I'm not mistaken. I'll have to go back, go back through all my potential reads list. Um, but uh, I've been meaning to get back on and like really jump into the differences between Taproot versus the script that Bitcoin has had um, because we haven't touched on that in a really long time and it's certainly worth taking another look at and seeing just how expansive Taproot is in the context of taking the puzzle pieces that are already there and allowing us to make far larger and more complex arrangements uh, within, within essentially the same sort of framework. But anyway, we'll leave that for another episode. A uh, huge thank you to our sponsors as well. The Fold Card for sats back on everything in your life. 20% off the Fold Card with Bitcoin Audible. 
And then Swan Bitcoin, our other sponsor, for the best way to stack Bitcoin all the time, automatically, no matter where you are, what you are doing, and send it automatically to your cold storage, which you will use a hardware wallet for, like the simple, sleek, and secure Bitbox O2 hardware wallet. You don't own sats if you don't hold your keys. And then lastly, Bitcoin Magazine and the Bitcoin 2022 conference. This year is going to be absolutely incredible. Um, had a chat with a number of other speakers and CK and like some of the crew. Getting, I'm seriously getting hyped about this. Guy Swan, the code Guy Swan, gets you 10% off your tickets. Don't forget that when you're grabbing them. And with that, I'm going to go execute a few Bitcoin smart contracts. And I will catch you guys next time on Bitcoin Audible. Until then, take it easy, guys. You have been listening to Bitcoin Audible, a 111 production. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.